In these days of deep division and turmoil, it's not uncommon to hear Christians asking, what does God want us to do? Gotten it through text messages, gotten it through emails, got it through rumors, got it through other people. What does God expect us to do? And with the media pouring in day and night and telling us what to think, believe, say, and feel, the exasperation of not knowing what to do becomes ever more intense as it seems as if our nation is tearing at the seams. And I just want to clarify who my audience is today. If you are someone who has been watching the headlines, disturbed by the state of events, and are left wondering how to respond, Micah is for you. The Bible is for you. What does God expect of us in days like these? I think as we'll see, Micah shows how God wants his people to speak and live in light of his coming. As we will see, Micah calls us to live in repentance of sin and in the hope of a coming shepherd, and secondly, to prophetically proclaim this message in a sinful world. Now, before jumping into the text, I think it's worth asking, is Micah even worth reading? I mean, does this Old Testament minor prophet most of us have never read and to be honest when you read through him most of what he says doesn't quite make sense does he hold any relevance for modern day political turmoil public scandals economic crises widespread injustice murder whispers of war debates about mask what does micah have to do with all of this i mean it was explicitly tailored for Israel and Judah in the 8th century. So how can an 8th century letter from a prophet hold any kind of relevance or a seat at the table of modern day discussions? Now what I've found is that studying prophets like Micah is a lot like trekking through the mountains. How many of you have ever been to Colorado? Just got back from there. So you're driving to Colorado, you see the Rocky Mountains and it looks like one continuous rock, doesn't it? But then you get closer to the Rocky Mountains and you find out that what you actually thought, what you thought at the beginning was one continuous rock is actually a series of peaks. You've get, you get Stones Peak, Sprague Mountain, Hayden Spire, and Chief Chelly Peak. And some of these peaks can be miles and miles of a distance apart from each other. Well, the prophets work a lot like that. You get Micah and Hosea and Amos and Jonah and all these prophets who are speaking one singular message the day of the Lord is coming. Very simple. The Lord is coming. Let's just put it as clearly as we can. That's what the 12 prophets want you to hear. God is coming to earth. Now, as you get closer to that singular message, that mountain range of a message, you begin to find it has several peaks. Who are the prophets speaking to? Well, in one peak, you find out that he's speaking to historic ancient Israel. And then you get to another peak that's miles away and you find out he's speaking about Jesus who's coming into a political turmoil of a second temple period when the Romans are judging and reigning over Israel. But then you find out they have an even third peak in view of a final day when all three peaks come together with the world's sin and injustice and oppression and evil and corruption and the Lord's King coming into one final day of judgment and salvation. 
So what is the context? What peak are we on? Well, we're on all three. We're going to look at what Israel said, uh, what, how it applied to Israel. We're going to look at how it applies to Christ. And then we're going to consider how it applies to our day in this end time, in this final day, as we still have a day of the Lord coming The message that God is coming is still relevant today as it has ever been. And so Micah is relevant for yesterday and thousands and thousands of years of yesterdays. He's He's relevant today and he's relevant tomorrow. And I think he's going to step on many of our toes, my toes in particular. His His prophecy covers lots of ground. It has implications for Israel's politics. There's no separation of church and state in Micah necessarily. Because it is God's state. God is going to have a right to speak into his state. So, so he's going to speak about Israel's politics. He's going to speak about social sins. He's going to speak about the whole nation. He's going to talk about public scandals. Israel had their Epsteins. Israel had their Harvey Weinsteins, or however you say his name. He's going to talk about covenant transgressions. He's going to talk about hope in a coming king. And he's going to openly lament the fact that his nation is sinful, and at the same time, hold on to the same singular hope that a king is coming to right all the wrongs. So I think Micah stands exactly where we stand as believers. My friends, as believers, you may think you stand in right and left, but really where we stand is we stand as refugees, foreigners and strangers, prophets, who do belong to this country, but ultimately belong to God, and we lament the evils of our culture, while at the same time knowing that the only hope for this nation and any nation of the world is Jesus Christ himself. It is only because of a ruling shepherd from Bethlehem. Not a president from Texas. Not a president from West Virginia or wherever we pick him from. It's not from a Senate picked with all the people that we want. The only hope of any nation of the world is a shepherd from Bethlehem. If you disagree with that, This is a serious time for you to repent. Micah's book is going to teach us how us modern day Christians how to make God relevant in our culture, how to make God relevant in the way you see the headlines, how to make God relevant in the way you see the sins of America, in the way you see the good things about America. He is going to teach you right now that Christ is not some sideshow in your life. Christ steps into your patriotism. Christ steps into your politics. Christ steps into your stances. And he reigns supreme. He is the roaring lion of Judah. To him belongs dominance and dominion forever and ever and ever. And so rather than telling you not to speak about politics, which has never been my message, rather than telling you that you shouldn't state your political opinion, which is never my message, my message is you may or may not be faithful if you choose to state your political opinion, but you will be absolutely unfaithful if you do not speak about your king. I'm speaking as a pastor. According to Micah, 
there is an imminent danger on the way. He opens his letter in this way in Micah chapter 1, verse 1. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, pay attention, all you people, everyone, listen. O earth and all that is in it, everyone, listen, every creature from high to low. Why should they pay attention? Because Micah says, behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. And he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. That sounds like a good message, doesn't it? God's coming. But he doesn't present it that way. This is a terrifying, frightening reality that he is preaching here. The Lord is coming. He says that God is coming with such holiness that the mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split open like a wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep. God is coming. And why is he coming? Because of the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Chapter 1, verse 5. I think if you do a Bible study of God coming down, you'll find lots of times that God comes down. God comes down in Genesis 11. To judge the arrogant builders of Babel. He says, I am going down to view what they're building. In Genesis 18, he comes down to see whether Sodom and Gomorrah's sins are as bad as the outcry as he has received. In Exodus, he comes down to deliver his people from the Egyptians and to judge the arrogant Egyptians. And so, typically, when God comes down, it's not some fluffy bunny coming out of the sky. Gramps isn't coming on vacation. That's not what the message is. The message is is that God's coming down. He's going to judge the arrogant and the sinful, and he's going to save his people. And so the message that God is coming is one that makes all people tremble, regardless of who they are, where they're from, or what they do. All people are trembling. I got to, my, my grandpa passed away this week, and I got a chance to be with dad, and we were kind of reminiscing a little bit, and And I told dad, I said, dad, I I wish I could say that I was always happy that you were coming home. But there were some days when I really put mom through the ringer that the message that dad's coming home was not good news. Right? How many of you have, how many moms have pulled that out? We just celebrated Mother's Day and Father's Day. How many, how many moms have pulled that out? Be honest. I mean, it's okay. It's it's a bullet in your arsenal. Your kids are rambunctious. And so you just, you decide you're going to pull out the big bullet. Dad's coming home. Right? And that, that's enough to kind of kick some kids in the gear, right? That's worse than a spanking from mom is knowing that you're going to get a cosmic spanking when daddy gets home. Right? And so sometimes dad's coming home is not a good, good news. It's only good news to those of us who did what we said that we would do, who did our chores, who obeyed mom. And then dad coming home was good news. But for the rest of us, it was news that meant that it was time to hide under the bed. And to hope that he forgot that we were one of his children. Well, Micah's basically saying that to, to the nation of Israel. Daddy's coming. And he's coming home early. Because mama's told him how bad you've been. And it's enough to cause him to tremble. Now, I get that this view of a mountain-melting, valley-splitting, angry God is not popular in our day and age. Modern people prefer a God that's not so terrifying, who's not so untamed. We want, we want the friendly house cat that we can pet and keep around and feed once in a while, but who 
takes care of himself, goes to the litter box on his own, but we don't want the roaring lion that he is. I think the most terrifying reality of Micah's message is that God's not just coming, but he's coming because he's the God who steps into the affairs of men. He's the God who sees what all people do, and not only that, not only does he see, he gets up to do something about it. He gets off of his throne, steps down from heaven onto the world, melts the mountains, all because of what? Because of one nation's sins. Whether we recognize it or not, we have a culture that by and large has stopped squabbling over the existence of God. I mean, just think about it. When was the last time you you, you publicly heard someone openly question whether God existed or not? Let me tell you what the new argument is in our day and age. Is he even relevant? I mean, people have developed over time. They've decided that, you know what? It doesn't matter if God exists. He's in heaven. We're here. He doesn't even matter. Even if he does exist, he doesn't have anything to do with the world of men. And what we have seen in days of late is a whole culture, an entire world, accommodating life for the absence or irrelevance of God. They don't mind, just like Israel and Judah didn't mind, they don't mind if you want God in your church pew, or if you want God in the church or on Sunday morning, just keep him there. That's where he belongs. That's his place. Israel and Judah wanted a God that would stay in his temple, that would stay in heaven. And yet Micah's saying, God doesn't stay in the places man makes for him. Now, it's easy for us to, to, to kind of say, yeah, that's wrong, it's terrible to treat God as irrelevant in life. But my friends, non-believers are not the only ones to do this. I have traveled the worldwide, and I have pastored many different congregations around the world. I have seen things that, for my young age, I don't mind pulling out the experience card sometimes and say, I have seen things that most of you haven't seen. And one of the phenomenons that I have seen in the American church, having stepped out of it and stepped back into it, is that the American church, by and large, has drifted to the same secularism. The same idea that God's not relevant in certain things. How do we do that? Well, let me ask you, how often does theology seem impractical to you? You understand the theological argument, you understand scripture, but there's just certain things that that just doesn't apply to. How often do we know that God has called us to love, joy, peace, patience? I mean, it even says that this is evidence that the Spirit is working in your life, and yet we justify why we don't have peace, why we don't have joy, why we don't love, why we're not kind and gentle. We justify it, saying, yeah, but it doesn't have this issue in mind. He wasn't thinking about the way that I speak about political candidates in mind. He wasn't thinking about how I speak to my neighbor in mind. He was only, he's just making a general statement that those things are good. How often have we justified our private sins and sinful habits thinking that surely God will look over these minor character flaws? We want God to hold the world accountable for murdering babies, but we do not want to be held responsible for a lack of love and compassion. We want to speak out about homosexuality, but we don't want to repent of pornography. My friends, let me just tell you what that is. 
That is Christians making God irrelevant in certain areas of life. What areas in your life do you have that God doesn't step down into? What areas of your life do you have that this is just for you? The Bible just doesn't seem applicable for this. Do we speak of God and politics as if they're co-equal governors? Or do we speak of the God to whom our politics must be subservient? Do we speak of God and ethics as if it's God and our ethical system? Or do we speak of God as the one to whom our ethical standard must take its cues? Do we speak of God and country? Or do we speak of the country to whom, to whom God must reign? To whom must represent, uh, must accept and acknowledge God's kingship. See, that's the problem that I have with some of our discussions. We treat these things as their co-equal friends instead of treating one of them as Lord. God is our friend and God is the friend of those who love him. But let's just face it, us being friends of God doesn't change the fact that he's still father. You can be a patriot, you can be a Republican, you can be all these other things. Whichever side of the political sphere you fall under, but if you treat them as equal to Lord, then you have misplaced your affections. God must reign supreme, God must reign over all, even our own pledge of allegiance is one nation under God. I'm not just thinking it's just saying a statement of authority, I'm thinking it's saying a statement in value. Who is more supreme? God. God. Always. My friends, you may think this is a little more heated than ever, but I feel like we need a little more heat than ever because our love is growing cold. Our passion, our joy, I have seen it in conversations. I have spent time with you all, and I am telling you, we are growing cold because of the world. My friends, let God step into every area of life. Either God is someone who has eminence over everything. Either he's the God who is all-encompassing. He steps into your private and public spheres, into your politics and your interpersonal conflicts, into public scandals and your secret habits, or else you do not have the God of the Bible. Micah opposes that kind of secularistic thinking. Even the most faithful Jew needed to understand at the time that God is the God who sees his individual sins as much as he's the God who sees Israel's corporate sins. And if God would step down for the corporate sins of the nations, he will also step into the sins of his people individually. Have we made God smaller in our discussions? Have we leashed God Put him in a hot wire boundary of things that he just doesn't belong in this conversation. I don't need to be a representative of God. I do in every other sphere of my life, but just not when I post on Facebook or Instagram. I do in every area of life, just not when somebody tells me they're going to vote for Biden. Either God is all-encompassing in our life, 
or we have the wrong God. Micah wants you, America, Texas as a country on its own, the nations of the world to know one clear message. God is coming. Now, he stated the danger. Micah goes on to show the depths of Israel's and Judah's depravity. And I think if you just listen to the biblical terminology of it all, you don't see very much difference between that world and this world. That historic time and this time. That nation and this nation. There's not a whole lot of difference. Except that America is not the covenantal people of God like Israel was. That's the one difference. Other than that, Israel as a nation, and America as a nation, Russia as a nation, China as a nation, Venezuela as a nation, France as a nation, they've all committed these same singular sins because people are sinful. And as long as a nation is led by mere sinful men, it will continue to repeat the same sins it always has. And so what follows is an indictment from the Lord against the nation. This is his national indictment against them. This is the word of God. He calls Israel and Judah to nations of the courtroom. And Micah basically says, All rise, the honorable Lord presiding, and the Lord has a seat on his judge's stool. And next thing you know, here comes the prosecution. And he lays out four charges. They're idolatrous. They're violent. They're unjust. And they love prosperity and nationality. They are idolatrous, violent, unjust, and they cling to hopes of prosperity and nationality. So let's just go through each one, why don't we? By the way, I don't preach for four weeks after this, so we're getting all four weeks in one sermon. (laughs) Israel's idolatry goes all the way back to the golden calf. God says it had always been a part of Israel. Israel's identity because of the fact that they were sinful human beings. And so they go all the way back. And in the historical context, Micah is writing in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And just real briefly, Jotham was a great conservative leader, right? He was fantastic. He even says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He led several to repentance, and yet he lacked the courage to push all of the idolatry out of Israel. He wouldn't tear down the high places. He gave people the democratic decision to decide what it was exact, where it was exactly they were going to attend the temple. And then you get to Ahaz, who takes Israel's depravity to a whole new level as Ahaz begins to sacrifice his own children, an Israelite Judahite king, a son of David, throwing his own babies into the fire of Molech. Live babies, killing babies. Hezekiah, things get a little better. So maybe now that Hezekiah is on the throne, maybe now that we got the conservative leader that we needed, maybe now we need to stop talking about sin and judgment coming. That's not true. Things had gotten better, but Israel was the same sinful Israel it had always been. Leaders might change, but the people's hearts stayed the same. 
And so the message of sin and idolatry and judgment was still needed very much, whether they had passively taken part in it like Jotham or actively taken part in it like Ahaz. They all had still in some way turned from God, and they all needed to be warned about judgment to come. Micah goes so far to say that Jerusalem, the holy city where the temple was, had become an inglorious high place, which is a term used for idolatry. It's a pagan temple. The whole city, he's saying, the place where God's temple is, has become a pagan temple. In Micah 6.16, he condemns them for following the ways of Omri and Ahab. Ahab was a wicked king, as was Omri, and they hadn't quite fully repented from all of that. The sins of the past still loomed large over Israel and Judah, and they were still having present-day ramifications and God still speaks of generational sin here. I mean, Omri and Ahab are generations back, and yet God's still angry at Israel because of that. Still generational sin. And so we see that one of the things that God hates most right now about the state of Israel in Micah is that it has turned from him and has turned to other lovers. And my friends, I hate to say it, idolatry is not a political term. It's the same single problem of humanity today. How many of us have not had idols before? How many of us have always worshipped God supreme and only? How many of us have only ever had an affection for God himself? The next category is oppression and violence. You might think this was bad, terrible oppression. It's not much different than what we're seeing on our streets in these days. We have a political law that legalizes the abortion of millions of human lives. You cannot say that that is less violent than what's happening here in Micah. They covet the fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. And one thinks immediately of Ahab in 1 Kings 21 when he falsely accuses Naboth, a righteous and holy and devout man, and accuses him of heresy and pays a bribe for false witnesses to testify so that Naboth will be executed by people throwing stones at him just so that Ahab could have his field. How many times in the world's history do we see nations, political governments, making moves and taking manifest destiny just because they wanted to. It's something every nation has done, isn't it? Every nation has been violent in some ways. Man, I'll tell you, my favorite movie in the world is Tombstone. Love Kurt Russell, number one. Number two, love Wyatt Earp. But man, you watch that and you just look at Tombstone and you're like, that was an American city where people are just gunslinging each other down. What do you mean we don't have a violent history? Go to South Dakota and see where Indians and and American Calvary slaughtered each other and then took each other's hair off. I lived in Oklahoma and bore the name Jackson. It made for some very awkward conversations in Oklahoma history class. It was my great-great-great-grandfather, Andrew Jackson, who moved all the Indians to Oklahoma. 
And some of them still remember some of their family dying on the trail. As long ago as that was. The point is, what do you mean we don't have a violent history? God looks at Israel and he says, this is the people of God. These are the chosen children of Abraham. And even they are people who tend to have this history of just taking what they want. They're the biggest bully on the playground, and they take what they want. And my friends, we saw it in France with Napoleon Dynamite. Uh, Dynamite that's a, yeah. <laughs> that would have made even better history if Napoleon Dynamite would have done that. I actually think France would have been an empire if that would have happened. We saw it in Germany with Hitler. We saw it in England during the Revolutionary War times. We see it in America. On the whole push the West, there are some people that say, let's go West, but let's not displace any of the people. And then there's other people that's like, who cares about the people there? We, just, we, have, a na- we have a worldwide history of oppressing people. Read Romans 3, and Paul calls humanity snakes. Don't clean us up. That is the depiction of God for the world and the nations of men. He says, but lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. And from their young you take away my splendor forever. If I want it, I take it. If I want it, I take it. And God says openly, he, he, he cries out the political leaders of Israel. And he says this, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil... Now listen to how he describes what Israel's kings and rulers are doing. You tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. You eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. My friends, this goes beyond fleecing the flock. This is making sheep stew of God's people. And all humanity does it. They build Zion with blood and iniquity. The rich men are full of violence. There's just this, this strong preying on the weak type of occurrence that is happening in the culture. And, and you might think, well, they were the best nation on earth, though, at the time. And they, and they were. I, I honestly think that Israel was the best nation on earth at the time. You look at neighboring Assyria, they're terrible. You look at Egypt, again, awful. You look at all these other Medo-Persian countries... Terrible. Israel, by and large, looks like it's one of the best. Well, how does God describe the best nation on earth? The godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They all lie wait in blood, for blood, and each hunts the other with a neck, net. Now listen to this in chapter 7, uh, verse 4. The best of them, God anticipates this whole best of them argument that we use, the best of them is a briar. You guys know what a briar bush is? It's that thing that grows in your flower bed that sticks you and makes you bleed a little bit and you say a few choice words. Yeah, that's a briar. The most upright of them is a thorn hedge. My friends, this is where my patriotism takes me. And this is where my Christianity takes me. I do believe, hands down, I'll say it publicly, that America is one of the best nations on earth. I'll follow that up. 
even the best fall short of God's standards and stands under God's wrath. I love being American. I would choose to live no other place on earth. I have lived other places on earth, and I would never choose to live there permanently. Definitely would not give up my American citizenship to live there because I know what I would be giving myself over to. But even knowing that we're the best nation on earth, God still says the best of them is a thorn bush. I mean, can we have that balanced perspective? Can we appreciate our country for being one of the best and yet at the same time still say our country falls short of the glory of God? Our country is a thorn bush in God's sight and he will bring judgment if it doesn't repent and yet we're still thankful to be living among the best. We're imbalanced. When we say we're the best on earth, we're basically claiming that we're all right with God. And yet God says, according to Micah, even the best of them is a thorn bush. Romans 3 says that among humanity, there's no fear before their eyes, fear of God before their eyes. He goes on to talk about injustice. Not only is there oppression and wrath, and I am trying to wrap this up as quickly as possible. Not only is there justice, injustice and uh, not only is there oppression and violence, but there's no justice. The heads give judgment for a bribe. Priests teach for a price. It's prophets practice divination for a money for money. That's Micah three eleven. Then you get to chapter seven verse three. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. My friends, is there anywhere in American history where we see people accepting bribes for justice? Has that never happened in our country? Do we not have Watergate scandals? Do we not have skeletons in our closet like that? My friends, when we say the word injustice, I'm not making some liberal democratic term. I'm using a biblical concept that God sees nations as less than just. We may be a nation that pursues justice, and that's great, but as long as we're pursuing it, we still haven't had it. Does that make sense? As long as we're pursuing justice we still don't fully have justice in the way that we should. God sees the nations of the world. He sees them as unjust. They detest justice and they make crooked all that is straight. Every human society in the world is not as righteous as God wants it to be. And the lack of rightness is something that God will not tolerate indefinitely. And a final category, and I'll try to be brief on this one, is that Israel and Judah hold idolatrously to this hope of continual prosperity. Micah chapter 2 depicts the deep denial of Micah's prophecy. I just want to pretend Micah was in America. What if he was speaking this message to us? We're not God's covenant people, but let's just say Micah was like Jonah and, and, and God told Micah, get on a boat, go over, and I want you to share this with those Americans. How would we respond? Well, here's what I hear some of the pastors and my, my fellow pastors doing. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. In other words, prosperity is going to go on and on and on. Those same preachers that are preaching for gain and who want more and more people to come to their 
their churches and to have great influence and they're trying to grow in, in their, their social importance and relevance, they say things like this, is not the Lord in the midst of us? Your best life is now. No disaster shall come upon us. Now, here's the reality. Is that false hope of prosperity? They think that they can keep going on. They can keep turning a blind eye to sins. They can keep allowing these things to happen in their culture. And yet, prosperity is going to continue because surely God will not bring judgment. God sees such false security and prosperity as not just futile, but as laughable. Laughable. My friends, I want to ask us as Americans, have we made the pursuit of prosperity our only pursuit? What if prosperity ceases? Here's the reality of what Israel was doing. They didn't care so much that they weren't right with God. They didn't care so much that, uh, that their entire national relationship with Yahweh had deflated as long as the economy stayed inflated, as long as everybody had jobs, as long as everybody kept going to school, as long as everybody had their gold and silver, as long as they had all of those things, then we don't care so much about this. Now, when this starts to deflate, everybody's eyes opens up. Let's just be honest. How many of you have been forced to reckon with the truth that was already there before COVID that you depend on God for your future? Sometimes God takes away prosperity. Because guess what? Prosperity is not the goal of life. And prosperity isn't physical, is it? You could live in a tent with no pegs with wet logs for fire, and if you still have God, guess what? You're prospering. Israel clings to their prosperity. Why do they cling to their prosperity? Because of their nationality. They're Israelites. They're, they're Israel. Don't they, don't, you know, God's not going to destroy Israel, really. They had the temple. They're children of Abraham. They had sacrifices. They had the promised land. And in fact... They say, you know what, Micah, you're right. Maybe we need to do a little bit more. They say, with what shall I come before the Lord? Uh, Shall I bow myself before God on high? Shall I come with him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body? Now others are asking, what can we do to take away these little... They're trying to bribe God. Do you see that? They're trying to bribe God. They're treating God as if he was one of the rulers of their nation. What can I do to kind of make these charges sweep away? Micah makes it clear that there is nothing short of repentance. Nothing short of repentance. He says this. This is the famous verse. So in Micah 6, 6, and 7, he just laughs at them saying that they think they can do all these things to become right with God. And in 6, 8, he says, God has already told you. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, to pursue righteousness, to love people, and to be humble before God. Anything short of that is absolute sin. 
Now let me ask you about your own nation, your own culture, maybe about yourself. Can you say that you perfectly love righteousness? In every possible way that you should, do you perfectly love righteousness? Let me ask you, have you been absolute loving to people? Have you shown mercy and kindness? Do people walk away from a conversation with you and say, Ooh, that is someone who loves mercy and grace. Have you been humble? Is our nation humble? Is our neighbor humble? Is our coworker humble? My friends, all that's meant to do is for us to confess. That's the biblical word for it. Confess that we're sinful, right? It's sometimes in days of late, getting people to confess that the world is not as it should be and that our nation is not as it should be and even the best among us are as thorn bushes and that we Christians have a lot to repent of. It's like pulling teeth. Come on, just get it out of here, right? Let's just, let's just confess that we're not fully sanctified. Can we do that? Can you just spit it out a little bit? Confess that you are a sinner in need of grace. My friends, I, your pastor, have not shown compassion the way I should. And you may say, yeah, right now is one of those times. But confession's good for the soul, isn't it? It was after confession that God is faithful and just to forgive all unrighteousness. And so to say that our nation is sinful and needs Jesus, to say that we have been sinful and we need the grace of Christ to say that our neighbor is sinful and needs Jesus is not betraying our country. It's sticking to the word of God. The sentence on Israel is death. Charges have been read. Gavel comes down. Israel's going to Assyria. Judah's going to Babylon. Now, before you think that's terrible, this is a depressing book. I don't know why we would ever pick up a book so depressing. I do want to end our time just by speaking of the hope that we have in Jesus. Micah's letter of indictment gives us some of the best promises that we have in Jesus. What is his solution to all these problems? I'll tell you this. His solution isn't just to pass a whole bunch of new laws. His solution isn't to write a letter to your congressman. His solution isn't that they need just new, a whole new governmental system or to defund anyone. He's not talking about defunding anyone here. His one and only solution is a shepherd king who comes from Bethlehem. He says this in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Epathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. Guess how many? One. Who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. Verses 4 and 5 continue, the description, uh, continue this description. It says this, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. Where does security come from? From the shepherd. Where have we been saying security comes from over the last few days? When we're anxious about our security going, agone, going away, when we speak about freedoms being chipped away, 
Do our anxieties represent the fact that security is in the king? Or do we subtly tell the world that our security and freedom is contingent on other things? They shall dwell secure. Not might, they will. Why? Because the king's coming. And he shall be great to the ends of the earth. No nation's going to be great. A king is going to be great. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. My friends, I just, I'm, I'm not making a political stance here. I just, I haven't preached in weeks, and so forgive this looseness. And, and again, maybe it's just my thoughts and stuff. We will wear hats that say, make America great again. We will wear t-shirts with our favorite presidential candidate, whether it's Biden or Trump, whoever you are choosing to wear that name. You will put signs on the outside of your yard. When was the last time you said the name of the king who alone his name is great in the ends of the earth? To your neighbor. They live a hundred feet from you. For some of you that have more property. And like mine. They live 25 feet from me. Do they know who I'm voting for. Before they know the one. Who is going to be great in all the earth. I don't care who you vote for in November. I'm not going to ask you. But I am consistently going to ask, are you more proud of that than you are the fact that there's still a king coming? God's gracious. He's going to give this king, and Micah says in 719, this is how he ends his letter, this is the word of hope. God will again have compassion on us. He will tread over our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You will have politicians this year, next year, 50 years to come when the Politicians we all read the headlines about now are dead and in history books. There will be new ones coming up making all kinds of promises, but not a single one of them tread your sins underfoot by taking it on his cross and dying for it. Not one of them could. I want to call our church back to hope in Jesus. I want to call us back to confession of sin. For whatever sin, whichever political party is calling each other's out sin, guess what? If the Republican Party is right that the Democrats sin in abortion and the Democratic Party is right in that Republicans don't speak about women in the way they should or some Republicans don't, it doesn't matter what the debate is. Can we just call sin, sin? Can we stand against injustice and oppression? Can we be the church of Jesus Christ? And make his name great again? On our lips? Let's begin there. Two primary applications. First one, I'll be very brief. 
Repent. Repent. The same sins that angers God are the sins that we must continue to repent. The second one, guys, I know I'm over time. I didn't go so long on the video. So if you want a well-timed sermon, go watch the video and you can see it again. Micah models the kind of role that the church should be playing. We are called to be the Lord's priest-king prophets in our world. He has not called you to be a political commentator. He has not called you to be a sociological expert. He has not called you to be a health official. He has called you to be an ambassador. He has called you to be a representative. He has called you to be prophetic. As a church, we are to stand up as prophets who speak in the name of the Lord. He has entrusted this to us. To us. Now, how well do we do it? Do we, do we share our short-sighted human perspectives? Or do we share from God's divine perspective? The threat facing our nation is the same. As thankful as I am for it, the Lord is coming, and our nation is in no way prepared for that reality. Now, we can get into the squabbles of mankind, or we can be the soldiers not getting entangled and doing our real job. Wrath is coming. Salvation's coming. Jesus is coming. If the world were to hand you a microphone, what would it hear? How unloving it would be for the whole world and everyone in the world to know your political opinions on every matter under the sun and not hear a word about your Savior. The world handed you a microphone. How unloving it would be for the whole world to hear your view on every current event, whether you think we should wear masks or not wear masks, what you think about international policies and immigrants, presidential candidates, and so on, but hear nothing about your king who is sovereign over all. How unloving it would be for the whole world to look at you singularly and know who you're voting for and yet know nothing about the kingdom that's coming. Well, that would never happen, right? If the whole world stopped on one single day to watch us give an address, a state-of-the-world address, that wouldn't happen. We'd be faithful, right? We don't do so hot with the Facebook microphone, the social, with the Instagram microphone. We don't do so hot when our neighbor hands us a microphone. Don't do so hot when we speak in a microphone at church. My friends, if you really do love this country, you really do love America. And I really, really, really love our country. You will not clean it up with your words, you will not be bipartisan, you will not be red or blue. You will simply be the kingdom ambassador God has called you to be. Now, sure, you might have Republican on your voting sheet. You might have Democrat on your voting sheet. You might have someone that you're strongly convicted to vote for. Praise God for that. But my friends, your command 
to preach the message of the gospel is a command from Jesus. You may vote for all the right people, but if you never speak about Jesus, you are not faithful. You could go to war tomorrow, lay down your life, and you be the single sacrifice that saves everybody else's political freedoms. And yet, if you do not speak about Jesus, you are unfaithful. Church, be the church. We are gospel people before we're Americans. And may we use our platform as Americans to speak about a better kingdom coming. If you're not offended, I'm offended by what I've said. So if you're not offended, you can join in sending me a list of emails, and I will be emailing myself this week with a list of complaints about this sermon. Number one, the fact it's gone too long. So... Um, I want to pray for us. I want to pray for our nation. Just take time for us to, can we just take a little extra time and know that it's worth the time to pray for our country, to pray for ourselves, to pray for our church? Isn't that the best thing to do on the 4th of July when we celebrate the freedoms we have is exercising them like what we're about to do? So let's pray. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Can you join me in just a moment of prayer? Your word says to be still and know that you are God. God, I thank you for this beautiful country that you've given us, a land of liberty that in this space and time uniquely demonstrates physical freedoms, Lord, that most other countries in the world do not have. We thank you for the visible illustration of men giving their blood, taking bullets, getting drafted up, called up, sent out, given commissions, storming bunkers, throwing themselves on bombs, stepping out on beaches, climbing cliffs, all so that we could have temporal rights. Lord, I pray that we don't lose the meaning of the illustration, though. Jesus has died for something much more. His blood was shed for something much more. And Father, long after America ceases to exist someday, Christ will still be king. You will still be God we will still be your people who are free. God, I pray for our church against anxiety. I know there are people who are angry, who are hurt, wounded, scared, worried. God, will you allow Jesus to breathe peace? He is the shepherd from Bethlehem who came to be our peace. That's the best promise in Micah, that when that shepherd comes, he is our peace. And so, Father, we now publicly recognize Jesus as our peace. And we ask for you to help us to repent. Lord, we may get engaged in certain things, but may we get engaged in such a way people know beyond a doubt that it is Jesus who we serve. May they see past our t-shirts and signs and may they see our heart. 
because they hear the word on our lips. Make us bold. Father, I pray in Acts 4, Lord, in this world of shaking and raging turmoil, God, you will help us use our freedom to be bold. If we cannot be bold in America, Lord, how in the world could we be bold anywhere else? So shake this place today with believers who are bold, not just for their party, not for their president, for their senate, for their congressmen and women, not just for the flag, but above and beyond and over all else and in supreme, Jesus Christ. Make us faithful. In the name of Jesus we pray.